Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that even though, um, especially in 2 Samuel, it's, it's raw. Um, it's sometimes it's even confusing. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would um, just help us. We just thank you, Lord, that, that you're, you're not afraid to give us details and, 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 and tell us a story, Lord, that <clears throat> seems to be just a challenge to us by virtue of the, the things that took place. But Lord, you, you desperately want us to see something fantastic about yourself and about your kingdom through this passage. So Lord, this morning, may we be teachable. May I simply as your messenger reflect your truth, Lord, that is in this text in such a way. Lord, not that we simply affect the minds, but Lord, that we also pursue the hearts of all of us that are here, Lord, that we would all be changed and drawn to, to worship you, Lord, with all our being. Help us now as we study your word in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, this, um, this section has been quite bloody, hasn't it? Um, there's been a lot of killing. Um, there's been revenge. There's been, uh, as we've read here, accounts of beheadings. Um, there was the, 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 the conflict that took place at the Pool of Gilboa where... Twelve men fought twelve men and all killed each other, and the battle that ensued as a result of that. And, you know, many times people looking at the Old Testament, maybe new believers or people who aren't believers, just reading the Bible think, wow, how can the Bible be so bloody? And one of the things we have to understand is that although we live in a society that for the most part is, is orderly, um, that isn't always the case and hasn't always been the case, and this kind of bloodiness and this kind of violence um, was far more commonplace um, back in these times. And so the, these stories are real, and the Bible doesn't shy away from, from the reality of, of man's conflict and man's behavior. And we certainly see that in our text today. And I'm not trying to be cute this morning, but this, this, this week as I read this passage, uh, there was a, a song that I learned as a child that came to mind. You're going to laugh when I say it because you'll think I'm just trying to be cute, but I think, I think it has some bearing here. Um, it is the song, Oh, be careful little eyes what you see. Oh, be careful little ears what you hear. Oh, be careful little hands what you do. Oh, be careful little feet where you go and mouth what you say. Because there is a father up above and he is looking down in love. Um, so be careful little feet, hands, ears, eyes. Uh, what you do say, and so on. Uh, there's an aspect in which we look at this text of Scripture and there are hands and feet and heads and people listening uh, where that song actually rings true. What are you doing? How are you doing it? So in chapter 3 and verse 1, we're told that the house of Saul was growing weaker and weaker. Do you remember that? And that the house of David was growing stronger and stronger. And as chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, goes into chapter 3, uh, we see that uh, there were efforts to really undermine the ushering in of God's kingdom where David would be sitting on the throne. And we established in the last three times that we were in 2 Samuel, um, really three truths. Truth number one, military might does not hinder God's promises. That's really helpful for us. I know we are living here in the United States. We would consider ourselves the, the strongest nation in the world militarily. 
or at least we used to be that way. And there was great confidence in that and great security in that. But that is not true for everyone around the world. And that's not true for every person who's sitting in a church around the world today who is a follower of Christ. And we can certainly be intimidated by military might. And there was a, a driving theme there. Listen, don't, don't be intimidated by that. And don't think that military might can undo God's promises because it cannot. Secondly, man's selfish ambition doesn't hinder the promises of God. Throughout history, there have been men who have risen up and who have been incredible leaders, not necessarily good leaders, but incredible leaders, and have caused great damage and harm and have, in some situations, even sought to stamp out Christianity. And, and yet, man's selfish ambition will not ultimately hinder the promises of God. It might seem like those promises are being undermined. It might seem like you know, God and his, his body is, is being dismantled, um, but God is still in control. And then, of course, last time we were together, we saw that rebellion, in this case, um, by virtue of revenge, by one of even God's servants, doesn't hinder the promises of God. And I think there's another kind of angle to look at that, and that is even within those that consider themselves to be the, the body of Christ, there are those who can act in a very sinful way that would paint a bad picture even for the body of Christ, and yet God's promises will still endure. I mean, just think about um, pastors or Christian leaders who have fallen in sin and the kind of shame and the, the kind of um, trouble that brings to us in, in, in our testimony, in our witness, and how people view those who are followers of Christ. But friends, just don't, don't think that those things will somehow end God furthering his kingdom and carrying out his promises because they will not. Now as we turn to chapter 4, we find a final argument, but this is an argument really from the other side of the coin. In chapter 2 and 3, man is attempted to hinder the promises of God, but now as we go to chapter 4, we will see that human effort uh, will never secure God's promises. It's the other side of the coin. Man and his effort cannot hinder God's promises from coming to pass, but we also need to be careful that we don't think that human effort actually secures God's promises. In other words, that the, that the whole of what God is doing is bound up in us. Certainly God uses people, both good and bad, the wicked and the faithful, to bring about his purposes and to accomplish his promises. But hear this. God is not starved for man's help. He's not sitting in heaven as if he's stuck in, traffic, stuck in traffic waiting for us to act before he can move on in accomplishing his purposes or fulfilling his promises. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. Now, he may be waiting for you to get your act together, but his promises are not thwarted by the fact that you haven't got your act together. He's not like a, a pilot who's flying a plane over a city and he's just circling the city, waiting for the airport to, to open up and, and waiting for some, some changes to take place down there, frustrated that he can't land. God will accomplish his promises. Regardless of man's attempt to hinder that and regardless of man's attempt to actually secure his promises, in a very real sense, he doesn't need us 
He doesn't need our help to carry out his promises. That might shock you a little bit. I might say, well, wait a second. I'm called to serve God. Yeah, you are called to serve God. You're called to have the privilege of being used by him as a vehicle through which he can work. But when we turn that around and say, well, God needs me. I'm too big of a fish that, that, that he has to use me. The kingdom of God will not go on unless I'm here. I would love to think that if, if something happened to me this week, that Gateway wouldn't dissolve. That there's much more strength in the church to say, this ministry is not about Rod Phillips, it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a church, the church would, would rally together and say, all right, what are we going to do next? And, and, and how are we going to continue to be the church that God wants us to be? I'm disposable. I'm just a servant of God. And so I've got to be careful. Any pastor has to be careful to think that they are the means by which God is accomplishing his promises and purposes, that without them he couldn't do it. No, he can do it. He does delight to use us, and we should delight to be used. But the carrying out of his promises is not hindered or secured by our faithfulness or our wickedness, by our skillfulness or incompetence, by our charisma or even our insignificance. God will always, regardless of man, accomplish his purposes. My friends, that is so important for us to anchor ourselves in. And so this morning, as we turn to 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 12, we want to see um, this played out really in this way. And here's, here's how I want to present the proposition. You cannot usher in the kingdom of God. You cannot usher in the kingdom of God on your own terms. Let me put it a little differently. Attempting to move the kingdom of God forward on your own terms is at best foolishness, but it's ultimately wickedness. Now, we'll go back to these two statements a little later, but you're going to see this unfold in this story. This attempt to move the kingdom of God forward can come in many ways. There's a town in Pennsylvania that woke up one day to find that there was a sharpshooter in town. Someone with a gun had been shooting around town. And all around the town were these painted targets on the walls of buildings and the chests of statues, on park benches, on light posts, and even on the sign to the entrance of the town. Targets painted. And in the middle of the target was a bullet hole. And so all the schools were closed, People questioned whether or not they should go to work. Most people stayed indoors. Public transportation was shut down. For two days, the police patrolled the town streets in greater number and through the night. And eventually, an outsider was identified, and he was questioned, and then they looked in the the hotel that he was staying in there, and they found a rifle and bullets and a couple of cans of paint. When the people heard that the police had had their man, they, of course, began to come out of their houses, and school began to start again, and the normalcy of life came because the people were now comforted and at peace. And in his interview, the police questioned the shooter firmly and cited him um, as a danger to the community, yet at the same time, those police had a little admiration for this guy. 
all right, I mean, what you should have done, you shouldn't have done, but how in the world did you do this? I mean, were, were you a Marine? Were you, you know, did you go to, you know, did you go to school? How did you learn to shoot like this? And his answer was very simple. He says, I shot the bullets first, then I painted the targets around them. <laughs> Now, friends, that is what we do when we are trying to move the kingdom of God by what we choose to do. What are some ways that we can seek to move the kingdom of God ahead? Let me give you a few examples, maybe just to kind of begin to cause you to think about this. I'll call this one the target of manipulation, where you think what you know, where you think you know what God wants, and so you use your skills of manipulation to see that it, make, it actually takes place. So you in your mind have already determined this is what God wants, and so now you're going to use your manipulation to get that done. The, secondly, the target of personal influence, where you've determined God's will, and so rather than pray about it and wait, you get on the phone, you write emails, you talk to those people that you have influence over in order to be sure that what you've determined to be God's will will actually take place. Or the target of selfish ambition. What you are calling God's will isn't really God's will, but it's what you want. And you've convinced yourself, because this is what you want so much, you're going to couch that event or that choice or that, that practice in this, this kind of statement that says this is clearly an indication from God that it's his will for my life. And so you present that to other people. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm practicing. And people are looking at you kind of like, well, I'm not really sure if you should be doing that. You say, well, you know what? I've prayed about it. This is God's will. You've already determined this is what you want. Now you paint the target of God's will around it. And then there's the target of human success. This is all what church growth strategies are all about. The, the use of methodologies and, 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 and mechanisms that are outside of Scripture to simply get a crowd, to get more people to respond to a decision, to get them emotional so that they will be receptive in some way, form, or, or, or somehow give greater or whatever it might be. And so what happens is there's this, there are these practices, there are these, these attitudes, there are these um, choices that churches make because they, they, they want to see success in the church, but the methodologies they're using to get that success or what they perceive it to be success is something far from what Scripture says is appropriate and right. This is also something that happens in missions. I, I know going to visit Matthias in Bolivia and we talked about this sometimes in the context of missions. You remember years ago, um, you know, this doesn't happen so much today because of the internet, but missionaries would write a letter back to the home churches, right? And they usually would send it to someone in the States, and they would send it out then to the various churches that supported them. And what they want to do is they want to make sure that they're convincing the churches that are supporting them that great ministry is going on. And what's always the temptation? To actually tell them the truth. I mean, because, you know, how many people attended and how many people were baptized and how many people were saved and all this kind of stuff, well, I've got to have some results. I've got to have some success. And there was always a temptation to, you know, to elaborate a little bit, maybe uh, exaggerate a little bit on some things. And then, 
You know, if, if, if a pastor was coming from the States to visit your church, missionary would talk to all the other churches in the area and say, hey, you know, send your people over. I want to have a good showing. And the pastor would come, and there would be a full crowd. But that wasn't his crowd. It was people from other churches that were coming there. And now, now the point here is this. There's, this, there's this, this mechanism to say, I want to show success, and then somehow paint the picture of God's will around it. And friends, this is what's going to, well, it's going to flow out of, of this text. So let's just think through then what this text will reveal. It will reveal for us where some of those sinful tendencies come from. It will show us the depths that man is willing to go to in order to secure God's will, or should we say their will, for their lives. It will reveal for us what God thinks of us when we think, talk, and act in that way. So let's jump right in now to, to the text with, with that kind of backdrop and understanding uh, to what I'm calling national panic. This is really the setting. This is what's going on now in, in Israel. When I say Israel, I'm talking about that there were two different factions here. There was Judah, and David was king over Judah, and there were still the remnants of Israel towards the north. And we're talking here about Saul's house, who is over Israel, and, and David's house that is over Judah. And, of course, Saul's house is growing weaker and weaker. And what we find here, as we begin here, is Ishbosheth. It says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed. His courage failed. Literally, what that means is his hands became slack. It's kind of like the expression we use he lost his grip. He lost his grip on his role as king. He lost his grip on what he was going to do. He was really helpless. You see, because Abner really was the king in the sense that he was the one who called the shots. He was the, the mind behind it all. Ishbosheth was the puppet king. And so without Abner, Ishbosheth is nothing. He doesn't have a mind, he doesn't have the skill, he doesn't have the ability to lead this nation. But now Abner was gone, killed in Hebron. What would be his end as king, as the rebellious king, as the one raised up against David? So Israel would not find a strong leader in Ishbosheth, but one that was growing weaker and weaker. And then a little further down in, in verse 4, it says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. And we're introduced now to Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth will come up a little bit later in the story, but here he's brought out, really, by the narrator to, to really emphasize a point here, that, that he's only 12 years old. When Saul died, he was taken away, and in the process of being taken away from his hometown, um, although he was crippled, there was an accident, and he became lame. And so now the question is, can a 12-year-old lame boy rule Israel? What kind of leader do we have? We've got a, a, a leader whose hands are weak, who they're, they're, they're dropped down, he's losing his grip, and the other option is a 12-year-old boy who can't ride a horse and can't lead anyone into battle. This is not looking good for Israel at all. It's going weaker and weaker and weaker. So how do the people of Israel respond? Again, now in verse 1, it says, And all Israel was what? Dismayed. They're all 
dismayed. The idea there is that they're terrified. They're in a great panic. They're, they're just freaking out over what's going on because, you might want to say, their leader, Abner, is dead. The king that they have has lost his grip. And the only other option for them is Mephibosheth, and he can't do it. What is going to become of us? And what happens to a people group in that time when they have lost, when they have now had to hand over their kingdom to another king? What's the norm? Well, it could be death. It certainly could be oppression. It could be slavery. And so they're panicked. They are terrified about what would actually take place. But not only that, they're also weak. They're also weak. And, and, and there's, there's something very... Um, um, what's the word? Sarcastic going on here. Uh, the, the narrator's kind of bringing into the story. Just, let's just read verse 2 and following. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Remen, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. And in parentheses it says there, For Beeroth also is counterpart of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners to this day. Now, remember, the narrator's writing this for a particular group of people. He's writing this for Israel while they're in captivity in, in Babylon. And he's, he's writing this to remind them of what the facts actually are because the Berethites were people that come up in the book of Judges that went against, like book of Joshua, that went against Joshua. They fled this particular town, and this town then was now repopulated by Benjamites. So he's trying to make sure they understand that these guys that are being talked about here are descendants, um, or, or might we say kinsmen, of Saul the king, all right? Just a little clarification there. For them, they would recognize, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's kind of like, like us just remembering something like, you know, like Hiroshima. What would come to mind? A great battle. Well, are there any people living anywhere near that area? I don't know. But they're not necessarily connected to the battle that took place there. The whole point there is to say, we're clarifying, they're not these people, they're actually descendants of, of Benjamin. They're the Benjamites, the part of Saul's family. So now, now we kind of get into this sarcasm, because here's, here's the picture that, that this narrator is painting. It's a very pathetic picture, isn't it? Abner's dead, Ishbosheth is panicked a mess, Mephibosheth is a hopeless consideration, and all that Israel has to offer are two captains of raiding bands. We're not talking about great warriors here. We're talking about um, sub, sub, sub captains of raiding bands. This is who they have. This is what they're left with. It's like calling on two high school quarterbacks to play for a professional team. Maybe in the Bay Area we could use some of that, but you get the idea. This is not necessarily um, the greatest option, but it is the only option they have. And Israel is in a miserable state, panicked and terrified. There's a little hope. For their future. Now, it was this national panic then that set the stage for what was going to happen next with Rechab and Bana to do what they did next. And friends, it begs the question for us. How will we respond when it seems like our comfortable world is falling apart? Now, obviously, we're in an election year. And you might be 
listening to arguments and statements and commercials and things like that, and you might, you might get really, really discouraged. Here's this great country that we've been in, and it just seems like things are imploding and imploding. That could be how you're responding. And, and it could cause you to spiral. It could cause you to be greatly discouraged. It could cause you to say, I'm moving to Canada or something like that, right? Um, and, uh, or down to Belize. A lot of people are saying, oh, let's go down south there, you know, down to the South America. There's great freedom there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's causing a lot, of, a lot of panic even among, among those who call themselves Christians. When our human leaders are growing weaker and weaker and the place where we're living is under threat, how are we going to respond? How are we going to act? How is this panic and fear going to affect us? And will we be overcome with panic and fear or will we put our hope in the king of kings who is always in control? And the problem for us, friends, is that we've been living in a soft culture where we haven't had to take hard stands that we may not know what that looks like. We may not know what it looks like to actually suffer and to endure because we are followers of Christ to the point that all these great things that we have, our homes, our finances, the freedoms that we have are stripped away from us. And are we going to tailspin because those things are realities or are we going to be able to, in the midst of all that, hold on to our sovereign God who is at work who is always at work, even though there's military might, there's selfish ambition, even when, you might want to say, people that you know are shifting sides. If we panic, how will we behave? How do people often behave when they panic over the circumstances of their lives? How does panic and fear cause us to abandon our hope in Christ? And turn to thinking, solutions, and actions that betray who we are in Christ. Here's a couple of things maybe to think about. This panic and fear drives us to think and act in ways, ultimately, that are contrary to God's word. Let me just throw out some illustrations for you. You go to the mailbox and you open up the mail only to find that medical bill that the hospital said would only be $100 is actually $1,500. How in the world are we going to pay for that? How are we going to take care of that? And, and, and what you're tempted to do is you're tempted to march yourself into the house and call Kaiser right away. There's got to be some direct line to this person i got to talk to to correct this. And you finally get someone on the end and you're like, hey, blah, 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 blah. And would you identify yourself as a Christian? Yes, okay. And we just abandon our trust in God, the way we behave, because we're consumed with this panic of this unjustness or whatever it might be. And we we lose our confidence in God and we start to function in our flesh. Aren't you and your spouse get into one of those arguments again and you see your marriage and your family imploding. And so you just say, I'm, I'm just going to give up trying to do things God's way. You stop believing that his way is best. You start to think about self-preservation rather than honoring God, about being right and 
about planning for the worst and your mind starts to go in directions to, to start considering and asking questions that it shouldn't be asking because you have allowed the situation to, because it is bad to open the door now for considerations that are contrary to what God's word says. This is how it works, friends. We spiral because we're not trusting God. So rather than stepping away until you've calmed down or until you're ready to seek to restore the marriage God's way, you just throw in the towel. Or maybe you fall flat on your face in sin again. You've been trying and working and you have other people that are praying for you and you just fall flat on your face in sin again. Fighting your flesh has been so difficult, it's been so hard, but you just can't seem to get the victory. And so now you're discouraged, you're fearful, and you're panicking because you don't see any end to your struggle. And you're tempted to listen to the lying voice in your head that keeps saying, you've done enough. Why not give it a rest? God will understand. Friends, fear and panic are actually a sub-theme throughout the book of First and Second Samuel. I'm not going to go through all the different places that that is true, but if you remember, Saul claims that it was his fear of the people that led him to disobey the clear commands of God, right? David, on the run from Saul, is com comforted by the, the words of his covenant friend Jonathan, Saul's son, who says this. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of my father, the uh, hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And so this, this message of do not fear has helped David to, to maintain his perspective. And of course, as children of God, we need to hear over and over and over again what Jesus said to his disciples. Don't fear. All right? Fear not. Why are you afraid? Matthew 10, 28 and following. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value and many sparrows. See, we need, we need to be careful that we aren't sucked into this panic and as a result do things that would certainly not honor God. So there's this national panic going on that leads us now into this decision that these two men make, and I'm calling this shifting loyalty. Shifting loyalty. Now, who are we talking about here? We're talking about the sons of Rimmon, the, the Berethite, uh, the Rechab and um, Bana. They set out. And the sad reality, friends, is that, that panic and terror in the land because of Abner's death and because of the, the weakness of King Ishbosheth and the, 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 the hopelessness of Saul's descendants bore fruit in these two men devising a desperate plan. And this desperate plan was not for the glory of God. This desperate plan was for self-preservation. And it was also for, might want to say, self-glorification. There's self-preservation kind of mixed in with self-glorification. We'll see that unfolding here. They're, they're so concerned that they are going to be the brunt of David's um, response and his retaliation to the northern tribe and, and their rebellion against him. 
So now the question is, how does this actual shifting of loyalty take place? And the story of Ishbosheth's murder, if you notice, kind of comes to us in two parts. Um, and, and this is kind of a, a Hebrew literary device, just so you know this, that, they, that the basic story is told, and then right after it, the more detailed story is kind of mentioned. It's just a, a way that they, they, they kind, of, uh, kind of speak. It's kind of like me saying, you know, there was an accident today on, on you know, 880, you know, and after that, I would say, well, you know, as a semi-truck hit a, you know, a car and blah, blah, blah. But I, I say the one thing first, and then I give the details after. That's what's going on here. Now, the sons of Rimmon, Berethite, Rechab, and Bana, set out about the heat of the day. They came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bina, his brother, escaped. And this is the, the, the kind of recapture, giving us the more detail. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. And they took his head and went by the way of the Arba all night, and they brought his head to David. So just three quick things that just flow out of that. First of all, um, they came purposely at the midday. This is a time of the day when people took naps. It was the equivalent of the siesta, you might want to say. So they knew where Ishbosheth was going to be, and they came uh, kind of in the guise of entering the house to get some wheat. Of course, they were, they were military men under the care of Ishbosheth at that point in time, so no one was really asking any questions. They'd probably been in that house before and been around, and people knew who they were. But the third thing, which is really the fact that we're getting to here, is not only did they kill him, but they beheaded him. And they took his head by the way of Arba. That means they took him kind of along the side so other people wouldn't necessarily see them. And eventually they found themselves in Hebron handing their uh, Ishbosheth's head to David. And friends, this was an utterly disloyal act to their king. Their panic and terror took them to the place that they would do such a despicable act as to kill and decapitate their own Lord and King. I mean, just, just think about that. Not only are they shifting loyalties, but they're murdering the one that they were once loyal to. But they believed that this was their ticket out of what they anticipated was coming, and that would be David's um, retaliation to the northern tribe. But they hadn't heard about David's kindness. They hadn't heard about David's forgiveness. They hadn't heard about David's peace granted to their prince, Abner. And without that knowledge, they assumed that he would be vindictive, that he would root out any enemies to his throne and destroy them. And it's worth noting, friends, that they underestimated David, who later in chapter 9 and following wants to demonstrate his kindness to Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, his friend. And see, the problem is, so many times, and this is the case, they really didn't know the king. And some of the times, friends, we panic and we respond in our panic because we really don't know our Savior. We really don't know the God that we worship. And maybe that's because we have been taught a God who is vindictive. We've been taught a God who is out to get you. Even the song that we started with, right? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you do, because your father up above, he's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you do. Right? I mean, it's kind of like this, he's going to be there. Look out. Well, yeah, he's there. He's looking. 
But he's, he's not just this an ogre trying to get you all the time. This King David is someone who is completely different, as we saw last week. He is not the kind of king that the nations have. He is a, a new king that God has ushered onto this throne. It's the king that God has chosen, this one who is after his own heart. Now the question is, why did they do it? So they came to David and presented to him the head of Ishbosheth. Now take notice of what they say and also how they frame their behavior. It says now, and they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, some things that just kind of jump out at you, knowing the context of what has happened. How did David feel about Saul? Well, the whole of 2 Samuel begins with David's lament of his death. Certainly Saul was his enemy, but David didn't want that. And David was not going to you know, raise his hand and touch the Lord's anointed at all. These men still think that David's attitude towards Saul is that he is his enemy. By their words, they have abandoned their king for King David... Their trophy here, the head of Ishbosheth, is much like the, the trophies or the crown and armlet that the Amalekite brought to David with the news of Saul's death. They were looking for and hoping that David not only would be pleased with their actions, but would also welcome them into his new kingdom. And so they presented Ishbosheth's head to David as a gift, <coughs> claiming that the Lord has given vengeance. This was Saul's son, and they were claiming that they had been used by God to bring about this vengeance. In other words, we cut off his head because this was God's will. Aren't you happy, David, with what we have done? My friends, while the Lord may use the wicked acts of man to advance his own good purposes, it is the height of presumption for the perpetrator of wickedness to present his evil deed as a gift of God or to couch it as the exercise of God's will. So what they were saying is this. What we have done in killing Ishbosheth and beheading him is God's will to bring the house of Saul to an end and usher in the Davidic kingdom. Well, who told them this was God's will? This is what they came up with. This was their plan to kill their king and bring his head to David. Put it a little differently, they beheaded Ishbosheth and then painted a target around his head, thinking that their disloyal and disgraceful act would somehow appeal to David. Now, friends, in what ways are we guilty of couching our choices, our hobbies, our attitudes, our relationships, our idolatry as God's will for our lives when it's not? Maybe you're pursuing a romantic relationship with someone that is an unbeliever. 
Now you're doing that because you're lonely, you're anxious, you're longing for some deeper companionship. You're, you're willing to couch your unbiblical relationship as something that God is supportive of, but you know in your heart he's not. But that's how you present it. God is at work here. It's really exciting. Yeah, it's great to see what he's doing. Well, yeah, but this, you shouldn't be with this person. Well, yeah, but, but this is God's... So you convince yourself that what you're doing is right and it's God's purposes. You're, you're, you're shooting your bullet first and then you're painting your target around it. Or maybe you have eyes on a different job. And this could be for all different kind of reasons, right? Maybe things at work are, are mundane or maybe you've been passed over for promotion or just feel neglected and you're justifying the restlessness you feel as an indication that it is God who is at work in your heart. The problem is that's just the restlessness you feel. That doesn't necessarily mean that that restlessness means it's God's will. But you want to couch it because if you start to look to greener pastures, it would be unethical for you to do that. And so what you do is you kind of couch it to your friends as this is God's will for me to do this when you know it's not. You're either trying to escape or you're looking for more money there may be some realistic reasons that might be biblical reasons, but oftentimes there are things that we want in our sinfulness, and we just simply shoot the bullet first, and we paint the target second. My friends, the reality is that we can shift even our allegiances during times of panic and claim that that shifting of allegiance is God's will. And who can argue with God's will? You ever had that experience? Someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm doing such and such, and it's, I've been praying about it. It's clearly God's will, and you're thinking, this doesn't conform to Scripture at all. How do I respond to this person? Because God's will is kind of like, I'm telling you what I'm doing, and you can't say anything about it. How can you argue with God's will? And that's what it's become oftentimes in our Christian culture. So from the shifting of loyalty now, we move to what I'm calling royal justice. How will David, the one who was growing stronger and stronger, react to these two opportunists? Well, first of all, he responds with justice. He first appeals to the Lord. Notice what verse 9 says. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Barathite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. Don't, don't just breeze through that. What is David saying there? David is saying, I've been in a pickle many times in my life. And yet God has always shown himself faithful. He is one who has redeemed my life out of every adversary. And all those years of running from Saul, I trusted my God to be the one who would deliver me. Even though I had the opportunity to stretch out my hand and to kill him, it was more important that I trusted God than I somehow move the kingdom of God according to my terms in my way, which would seem right not only to me but to the people around me. Right? Didn't, didn't David have to struggle with it? Even his own soldiers say, hey, listen, <laughs> Saul's out there. Go take care of him. And even Abishai earlier, who was you know, the co-murderer of Abner, he was with David and said, listen, I'll, I went into the camp with you, and I'm going to thrust Saul through with the spear. And David's like, no, 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 no. 
David knows what it's like to be in all sorts of situations and to have the hand of God, his sovereign God, deliver him from every adversity. And then David accuses them of doing the same thing that the Amalekite did when he came to tell them about the death of Saul. Verse 10, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, at this point in time, I'm sure these guys are like, uh, I wish I had done something different. He says, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. And now David promises that their end would be worse. Verse 11, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? I think I probably would have died just at that statement. The panicked and murderous actions of Rechab and Bana were not simply foolish. They were thoroughly wicked. And this is the point. This, this thinking that somehow I can do something that, that moves the kingdom along is not just foolish. It is wicked and rebellious against God. God will do things his way according to his plan. One of the things I love about studying missions is that most of the missionaries that went out in the, I would say the you know, late 1800s or so to, to, to evangelize the world, they weren't saying, I'm going to go to India and I'm going to save all these people. They were saying, God is sovereign and he's about saving people and I want to be a part of that. And if God can use me, so be it. They weren't going over there notching numbers on their belt. They were going over there rejoicing in a sovereign God who was using them as a means to bring about his growing kingdom. They were thoroughly wicked. They had murdered a righteous man in his own home. Now, the idea of righteous there is not saying that Ishbosheth was, you know, legally righteous before God, but simply. He was innocent of this whole thing. Now, years ago, in a prophetic way, Hannah, Samuel's mother, prayed. This is the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2, but this is how the prayer, this is one of the stanzas in the prayer. Here's what she says. He, that's God, will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall man prevail. That was extremely prophetic. It, it is the warning given to the people of Israel by Samuel when they had chosen Saul to be the king. This is what he says. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And just a few days earlier, David called Joab and Abishai the wicked for their murder of Abner. Now, friends, we must, we must, we must remember 
that wickedness, no matter how well intended or couched in God talk, does not usher in the kingdom of God. I say that again. Wickedness, no matter how well intended or couched in God talk, does not usher in the kingdom of God. Or as we've already said, you cannot usher in the kingdom of God on your own terms. And then somehow paint a target around it. Ah, this is God's will. So there's justice. There's death, verse 12. David commanded his young men and they killed them. And they cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. This is gruesome stuff, isn't it? But notice the, notice the, the book ends to the story, if you would. It's interesting that the efforts of man to either usher in or thwart David's kingdom both began and ended at a pool. From the pool of Gibeon, where Abner sought to flex his military might to the pool of Hebron, where these two men would gruesomely hang for all to see as they came daily to fetch water. They hung as a reminder to all the, the, the people that the new King David was a just king. You might say, how could that prove that he's a just king? Well, just as the people had mourned the death of Abner, recognizing his gracious, forgiving nature and the fact that he sent them away in peace. So now they would remember the wickedness of Rechab and Bana and how David, this new king, would deal with their injustice. He would rule the king or the kingdom with justice. Now, friends, it would be hard for us to see that because it, it seems so vile that we would even consider a, a body hanging on a wall with no hands and no feet. But it spoke volumes about the character of this new king. He was not like the kings of other nations. He was a king that God had chosen to be the king of both Judah and Israel. He was a king after God's own heart. And then there's honor. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it at the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Isn't it interesting that the enemies of David are treated with honor by David. David writes a lament for Saul. He writes a lament for Abner. And even now, Ishbosheth is buried in honor with, with Abner, who was the one who raised him up to be that king. God's providence and promises have been at work. God has been orchestrating his plan to accomplish his purposes, even using the wickedness of man to accomplish his will. Now, I don't know if you've caught the irony in the, in the passage of the, of the imagery that's been here. It's been present through the whole story. We kind of started it out, started with it. Ishbosheth's drooping hands, Mephibosheth's crippled feet, and now the cutting off of what? hands and the feet and the head, all just a picture of the crumbling nature of the house of Saul. Listen to Hannah's prayer again. God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. 
for not by might shall man prevail. Now, there's some things to think about just about what she was saying there. Now, I want to end with three thoughts. Three thoughts that hopefully will clearly just flow out of our text here. Number one, you and I can do nothing to impress God so much that we'll be moved ahead in his kingdom. You and I can do nothing to impress God so much that we will be moved ahead in his kingdom, either in coming to him in salvation or secondly, in seeking to please him in our sanctification. Listen, God is not impressed with how many chapters of the Bible you have read. He's not impressed uh, by how long you have prayed. He's not answering prayer based on the duration of your prayers or the position of your prayers or how articulate the words are in your prayers. You won't enter heaven because you gave money in the offering plate. You won't go enter heaven because you serve peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to the poor. Our efforts to impress him with our goodness and righteousness. The word of God calls filthy rags, menstrual rags. That's what it looks like to God when you come to him trying to present your righteousness and your good deeds as worthy of entering the kingdom of God or somehow in your walk with God as worthy of moving you along and kind of moving you up in rank, so to speak, in your own sanctification. We come into the kingdom clinging to one person and one person only. His name is Jesus Christ. The songwriter has said it well when he said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You see, it isn't what you and I do that moves us ahead in God's kingdom. It's totally and only what Christ has done on our behalf. He died in our place. It is his good work that is a sweet-smelling offering to God the Father. Now, once we're born again, and we're born again by God, we are to live our lives in such a way as to please him. But that should be our attitude. That should be our goal. That should be our desire. But our pleasing him doesn't somehow move us into this super-Christian status. We are by all, by virtue of our growth in Christ, maturing in him day by day. And so, friends, we need to stop trying to do good works to try to please God. Instead, we do good works so that others can see the beauty of the gospel. Our good works flow out of who we are in Christ. They don't come out somehow to say, God, look at how good I am. Aren't you happy that I'm pleasing you? And somehow now I'm ushered further down the road into this this, this kind of maturity in Christ, so to speak. That's not the way it works. But so often that becomes our default. There are people who embrace the gospel as all of God's doing, but they live their lives as if they have to be proving to God that they are pleasing him. Now, certainly, does God want us to read his word? Of course he does. Does he want us to spend time in prayer? Certainly. But when is your prayer answered? Is it after 15 minutes of prayer? If you spend another 15 minutes in prayer, will God really, really answer it? What if you're on your knees? What if you're sitting down? What if you're laying down? What if you go to a mountaintop? Is God going to hear you anymore if you're at a mountaintop? Go to Yosemite. Be closer to God there. He'll hear you, right? 
Now, see, these are all things that we put in our mind thinking we want, we want to force God's hand. We want to usher in the kingdom. We want to, we want to move down the path, and we want, to, we want to somehow manipulate it ahead. That's not how it works. God can hear you just as much as you sit in your garage with all sorts of junk around you, crying out to him for help and wisdom and direction, as if you were to go to the top of El Capitan with your hands outstretched like you were on some slide that would be on a PowerPoint, right? This is what it's all about. God's not going to hear you more at El Capitan than he's going to hear you in your garage. And that's comforting because some of you have got some really bad garages, right? <coughs> and the reality is, how about some of you, you, some of you moms? You've got, you got little babies running around. The house is a mess. And you're like, you know, how can God hear me in this mess? That's exactly where he hears you. And you don't have to somehow impress him with where you are and where you need to go to get to him. You're right there with him. There's a tendency, though, for us to think we need to be more spiritual and somehow he's going to hear us more. We're going to be moved along more if we simply please him better. Number two, never compromise, never compromise righteousness. Never compromise God's truth, even when you imagine that good will come of some unrighteous action. Now, friends, it's very unlikely that we'll ever be tempted to think that an assassination is called for in order to advance the gospel. Although, there might be some that think that way. It's not unusual for Christians to try to advance God's kingdom by disgraceful and unworthy means. Be sure that you love righteousness more than success. My friends, this is kind of a, a theme for us as a church that we need to consider just as much as it is a personal thing. It wasn't long ago when churches had bus ministries. You guys remember that time? Maybe it's not so much here in California, but in the Midwest, boy, bus ministries, churches would, I mean, they, they, they have, you know, 20, 25 buses, some churches. And what they would do is they would go into communities and they would get these kids to ride their buses and come back to church. And they would have the kids in Sunday school class. And sometimes if they raised their hand, they would, go and they would baptize them and send them home wet and that kind of stuff. I mean, there was just huge ministry to these, to these kids. And part of the problem was that not only was it one church doing it, but there were multiple churches in cities that were having these bus ministries, and they were all trying to go to the same neighborhoods. And, of course, the goal at that point in time was to be able to write into a magazine or a newspaper that said, this is how many people we had in Sunday school. Look how great God is at work in our church because our Sunday school attendance is this, all right? And so what ended up happening is that um, different churches would have different kinds of candy that they would hand the kids when they got on the bus. Now, the kids are standing in the neighborhood, and they're thinking, all right, which bus is going to have the better candy? And then the people start thinking, oh, wait a second, no, the candy's not sufficient. Maybe we've got to do something else. And they start bringing out toys for these kids and that kind of stuff. And the goal is to say, this is how many kids we had in Sunday school. Isn't that great? Are we honoring God? And the answer is, what? No! You're buying kids to come. Nothing wrong with sending a bus into a community and having kids get on the bus and come to church. That's not the issue. It's not the medium but it's the mechanism to actually draw them in. Friends, 
the church has been guilty of that kind of stuff. Never compromise righteousness, the truth, even when you imagine that good will come of some unrighteous action. Who cares how many people attended church that day? God's not looking down saying, ah, oh, you got 10 more. Woohoo! you get a ribbon. I mean, just look at us today. There's people missing, and there's people that are here. We are God's church. We don't get discouraged. We don't you know, get excited simply there's more or there's less. We've got to be careful with that. If we start thinking that way, that will affect then our understanding of what the church is about. And we'll be tempted then to reach into some strategies that are satisfying our hunger for success rather than righteousness. Things haven't changed much, though, friends. We may not have buses parking or picking up children, but instead the church now is plagued with subtle competition between entertainment, programs, relevant preaching, impressive facilities. You can go on and on and on. Come to our church. You should see our kids' program. Come to our church. Look at our facilities. I mean, we even have a coffee bar and rock climbing. And, and that's how crazy things are getting, guys. As if that's what God is really interested in. How much does the modern church seek to paint targets around its own sinful, success-driven agenda that have compromised righteousness? And we here at Gateway are not immune to such thinking. We've got to be careful that that is not what we're doing. The final thing is this. In the face of wickedness, be confident be sure that God's promises are sure. Because in the face of wickedness, we know that we can begin to be discouraged. We can begin to panic. We can begin to implode. But remember what happened to Christ. Pilate, Sanhedrin, and the multitude of people shouting, crucify him, crucify him, got what they were asking for, did they not? Their motives were to kill off this religious imposter who was causing so much difficulty to the religious establishment in Jerusalem and in all Judea. They wanted to rid themselves of this upstart that was threatening the peace of Jerusalem, but that is through their wicked plotting and condemnation that they were actually fulfilling and accomplishing God's purposes. The crucifixion, which was at their hand was also the sacrifice once for all, which is all part of God's hand. <laughs> Through their wickedness, God's plan of redemption traveled to the cross where Jesus died as the Lamb of God. As they laughed, as they mocked, as they scorned, they were unwittingly ushering in God's kingdom with God's king. Now, friends, in the face of wickedness, be sure that you know that your sovereign God keeps his promises. Always has done, always will. Lord, help us. Help us, Lord, not to be the kind of people who rationalize things away in such a way that we shoot the bullet first 
and then paint the target around it and somehow claim that this is your will. Oh, Lord, may we not be guilty of that, not as people, not as a church. May we be diligent to trust you, to not run ahead of you, to not try and manipulate what we perceive is your will, but, Lord, to follow the example of King David, even the example of Christ, who was patient, waited, trusted you, and allowed you to accomplish your purposes in your time for your glory. Help us, Lord, to embrace that and to worship you as we do in your precious name. Amen.